that we know this information, what do we need to be asking our Black women or our Brown women or women who you know are over 50 or mothers or caretakers? What are the questions that we need to ask to make sure that they feel seen, heard, and supported returning back to whatever that might mean? Hi, and welcome to the new Rules of Business by Chief. I'm Lindsay Kaplan. And I'm Carolyn Childers, and we are the co-founders of Chief, the network of the most powerful women in business. Each episode, we take on a complex, even divisive leadership question. And today, we're talking about the intersection of two of the most critical focus areas in the way we work. How will the initiatives on DEI across companies be impacted by a perma-remote workplace? Yes. And let's face it, we've been talking about this question and we've seen so many articles addressing this topic. You know, workplaces are going hybrid. A lot of people want to go back and a lot of people want to stay working from home. And that includes often non-white employees who have felt marginalized in the workplace, caretakers who are not willing to work that nine to five and not be home for their kids, and neurodivergent people who maybe never felt comfortable in the environment to begin with. But where this topic gets really complex is how does it affect the advancement opportunities that any of these groups get when they are home and their counterparts are rubbing shoulders in the office? Yes, you're missing those impromptu coffee meetings, People keep talking about the importance of whiteboarding in the conference room in person. Does that mean that people who come into the office are going to be predominantly white men? Will they have more opportunities? And then how do you implement DEI practices if you're dealing with two very separate classes of workers? We always say never waste a good crisis. And I really hope that companies, as we think about and kind of blow up the way that we are working right now with the move to PERMA hybrid workplace, that all companies are thinking through a DEI lens as they build that new way of working and ensure that all of these groups that are choosing more of the remote than the in-person are being treated fairly equitably and that the inequities that we saw in person have a new shot to be redefined. Yes, there's a lot to grapple with here. And I know that so many workplaces around the country are asking these questions too. So later this episode, we're actually bringing back Harvard Business School professor Francis Fry and Ann Morris, co-founders of the Leadership Consortium, to explain the opportunities that hybrid and remote offices could offer. But first, I talked to Minda Hartz, the leading expert on creating diverse workplaces and author of the books, The Memo, What Women of Color Need to Know to Secure a Seat at the Table, and Right Within, How to Heal from Racial Trauma in the Workplace. Minda is the expert on how leaders and talent can make sure they're creating an equitable workplace culture. And she's been an incredibly popular speaker at Chief. And speaking of remote workplaces, I actually missed this interview because you ditched me. I, I ditched you, you ditched me because I was dealing with my kids at home who needed me. It's my first time going solo. I made it work. I made it work, but I missed you. I missed you. I missed you, and more importantly, I missed meeting Minda because she's incredible. I immediately went to Amazon and bought her book. So I'm so excited to hear this interview. It was a great one. Hi, Minda. Thanks for joining us. I would love to dive right in, if you don't mind. 
thank you for inviting me. Um, let's do it. So first, I'd love for you to tell us just a little bit about your background and the journey that brought you to your work as an author and a speaker. Uh, Carolyn, how much time do you have? Uh, <laughs> 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 but I'll try to give you the the Cliff Notes version of how I got here. I spent the last 15 years of my life in corporate uh, in nonprofit spaces. I was a consultant and I was always the only one, the only woman of color, the only black woman, sometimes the only woman period in the room. And I started to just assume that because I had experienced all these inequalities in the workplace as a, a black woman, that I thought that was normal because I didn't have anything else to liken it to, right? <laughs> my experiences mm. had always been kind of shrinking myself. And so I just started to tell myself that this must just be how the workplace works for women who look like me. And I accepted that narrative. And I remember crying in my car. Maybe some of your listeners have had that moment. I call it a, a slide down the wall moment where you're just like, oh, somebody <laughs> help me. <laughs> and you just don't know what to do. You know, I've done everything that the workplace is expected. I've gone to college. I've code switched. I've done, you know, I've checked all the boxes and still, you know, I'm just not getting where I need to, to be. And, you know, what am I going to do about this? And at that moment, that was 2013. I wasn't sure what that looked like, but I had committed in that car. Um, I'll never forget the day that I would figure out how to make the workplace better than I found it. And if I make it better for women who look like me, then eventually that spills over and makes it better. Because if you, if there's racism at work, then there's probably sexism and, you know, those who are homophobic and ageist and all kinds of things, right? So it, it sprinkles over into other aspects. And and I said, you know, I'm going to figure it out. Are there particular DEI efforts that you have seen that you think are particularly effective that don't rely on the woman to come forward and own their space and center themselves, but that companies are starting to do that effort? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the companies that are doing it right are the ones that are not just saying the rhetoric that, you know, certain lives matter or that we're going to make the workplace equitable or that we're going to hire, but they're actually demonstrating it. I think what has to happen is every decision that we make has to be rooted in equity. And mm -hmm. when we make decisions based off of that, then we're not just thinking about how it affects us. But we're thinking about even how it might affect the next generation that comes in who will be a beneficiary, for better or worse, of these policies, right? And so I think when we think about, okay, ERGs, for example, employee resource groups or business groups, they're great to have, but if those groups don't have budgets, then it's very hard for them to move forward with some of their goals and initiatives, right? So those companies that said a year ago that we're going to commit to racial equality, well, for those companies that haven't done anything, it's just another way just to placate people. So for me, for example, we know the wage gap is an issue for all women, right? Most women are not making equal pay for equal work. But for example, Black women, we make 63 cents on a dollar, meaning we would have to work 214 extra days to make what a white male made you know, this year. And so it's important for us to say, okay, well, when's the last time has my company done a pay transparency audit um, and let everyone know what everyone's making, right? And be transparent about it to say, after you know further investigation, we found that we do have some pay practices that are not transparent, but we'd like to work to get to parity, right? If I'm working in that company as a woman, I would be happy knowing that my company is moving forward. And then also those who are tying diversity metrics to their bonuses, because I think when you make it real to people in their paychecks and their day to day, and you create that as a norm, 
within their metrics of work productivity, then I think it may require some of those because what we know, Carolyn, is that if we leave it up to everybody else to do it, they may not do it or it might take another 20 years for us to see some movement. And I think if we're not measuring the success of diversity, then we're, we're doing everyone a disservice and it has to be in the beginning. It can't be an asterisk. Yeah, I I say all the time what is measured is managed. <laughs> and I think it's it's true across every part of the business. I'm curious in today's context as well, where so much of the workplace is being redefined. So we're no longer all in the four walls of a corporate workspace, but we are now in this kind of hybrid or perma-remote type of workplace. What effect has that had on women, women of color? And do you see it as a, a good thing or is it actually creating even more inequality? You know, well, there's a report that came out and they asked Black employees, how many of you felt like you belong in your organization? And 54% of Black employees surveyed said that they didn't feel like they belonged at their companies until working from home. And that's a very uh, heartbreaking statistic that if you've been at your company for however long and you didn't feel like you belonged until you worked from home, that signals to me that we can't go back to normal. We have to go back to better, right? And before we say, just show back up on, you know, December 5th or whatever arbitrary date that people choose, what are we doing to make sure that people feel safe when they return back? And I think what I'm optimistic about is that we're now having these conversations about what flexibility means for women. Before, it used to be this old, you know, rule that you can't do your work from home. But what we have seen is that you can do a lot of your work from home. And so what does that mean for women in the workplace? That means that now we may even have more opportunities to go after the jobs that we really want because we're not confined to just location or zip code or, you know, five-day work weeks. And so for me, I'm really excited. And I do believe that as women, we get to create the future of work for ourselves because we are the asset, right? We now get to decide what works for us and what doesn't because now when someone says, no, you can't do that work from home, we actually have tangible receipts to say that, yes, we can. And this is how we've been productive. (laughs) Remember that year where we all had to and we still were able to manage? It does work. Um, It does. For those 54% that said, I did not feel like I belonged to this company until I was working from home. What about working from home was changing that, do you think? A lot of Black and Brown employees, a lot of Black and Brown women experience those day-to-day microaggressions, macroaggressions. And so being at home, they weren't experiencing it as much because it was really about the work, right? And so it wasn't about as much about the office politics or about, you know, code switching or all of these different things Like people felt like they could actually be themselves and they can have conversations with their managers in a way that wasn't so toxic as it was in the workplace. And so I'm glad that that statistic is out there. And I try to tout it as much as I can, because I think, yes, we want to get back to work, but what are we going to do to make sure that we're meeting the needs of our employees, right? If they're being productive. And if we say that equality and equity is important, then we have to figure out how we create a space that would make them feel like they belong if we go back to a hybrid or we go back to a, you know five days in the office, we just can't say, oh, okay, well, thank you for that information and then do nothing about it. So I know that there's a lot of concern from Black women about returning back because they don't want to go back to toxicity and nobody would, right? It's like a, an abusive relationship. You know, you, 
you don't want to go back if you don't have to, right? You know, and and you want to be able to have those honest conversations about that. And you want to know that something's being done so that the harm is not being caused. And I think that as managers and leaders, we get to really ask the right questions now, right? Now that we know this information, what do we need to be asking our Black women or our Brown women or women who you know are over 50 or mothers or caretakers? What are the questions that we need to ask to make sure that they feel seen, heard, and supported returning back to whatever that might mean? At the end of the day, it wasn't working before. So it's not like it's not like we had something working and now we have to like redefine it in a new normal. Overall, would you say it is a positive thing for women, women of color that this redefinition of the workplace is happening? Do you think it is possible for the hybrid office to like help level the playing field? I do believe that to be true. Um, you know, ask me in about 20 years. Let's have this conversation again, Carolyn. But I think... <laughs> it's but, a date. It's but a I, date. <laughs> but I think, you know, it has to be better, right? And I think we can't get to equitable solutions if we don't see what our alternatives could be, right? But if we stay very stuck in our silos and say, well, this is the way we've been doing it all since I entered the workplace, knowing that it doesn't work for you, you know, what do we have to lose to try some different models? And I think that's where the creativity and the innovation really start to to percolate. Yeah. And have you seen particular companies or practices or policies even that you are particularly encouraged by that, you know, our listeners might be able to glean some insights from. I'm working with one company that most people probably use their products daily, and they're being very intentional about what it means to return back. And one of the things that they realized was that, you know, over half of their workforce does not run a return back, but some of the job functions require people to be um, inside. But one of the things that they put out there is saying, okay, well, let's not have meetings on Mondays and Fridays if possible, right? Or when we are in the workplace meeting, let's make sure that we're also doing some team building activities, that it's not just hardcore work why we're all in the office, but just creating those moments where there's still self-care because many people are experiencing burnout. And if we have to have a meeting on a Friday, then you need to come with a reason why we couldn't have it on another day. And so I love that they're just opening up that space to say, hey, this is what we want to normalize. And we want our managers and leaders to adhere to that so that our employees feel comfortable and safe to be able to vocalize what's working and what doesn't. And if we find that this isn't working, then let's be open and flexible to create a new normal as we keep, you know, redefining what work could be. And I think that that's the point of it, just listening to our our talent and making sure that we're providing a, a working environment where they can be productive, because when they're productive, then it's good for our bottom line. And what about flipping it and actually talking to the women and women of color who are staying home? Are there specific tactics for them to just make sure that they remain top of mind for their managers and uh, are staying engaged in the company that that helps to make sure that some of these advancement opportunities don't pass them by? I know this is what I'm about to say might sound very elementary, if you will, but I think it's really important um, to have in our toolkit, which is self-advocacy. And I think sometimes as women, we just might assume that our managers know what we're doing or what we need, but it's important for us to vocalize what it is we need and what good looks like to us. This is a great time to vocalize to your manager to say, you know, I know we're preparing to come back to the office, but I just wanted to say, you know, right now I have X, Y, and Z. It'd really be helpful if I could 
work from home three days a week. And here's why, right? And based off of what we've been doing over the past year, I've been able to be productive, you know, 10x in this way. But your manager will not know what you need if you don't articulate that to them. And we can't assume that it's just going to be a no, because once we put it out there, then we can start to strategize, well, is this the place that I should stay? Because they're not accommodating me. Or, you know, I need to work here another, you know, six to 12 months, and then I'll start to strategize where I need to go next. But I think we have to normalize having conversations and letting people know what we need so that we give them the chance to, to, to help partner with us on the road to success. But when we don't even have these conversations out of fear or whatever have you, then we we block what's potentially could be ours, right? And and I think that that's something that I think we should continue to, to advocate for ourselves so that we give our managers and leaders a chance to show us that they want to partner in this way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the worst thing that can happen is a no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so I'd love to talk about in the digital world that is this new hybrid remote workplace, there's still microaggressions that can happen even in this context. Are there certain things that you would advise people to do to like really ensure psychological safety in this environment? Yeah, we're doing a lot of emailing because many of us are may not be thinking about like manners and language that it's real easy to be very curt with someone or, you know, so I think we really have to be intentional about the language that we're using when we're reaching out to people. Because again, how we address somebody and the tone in which that email comes across can be a microaggression. Why would you CC my manager on something that you could call and ask me about, right? And I think those are the ways that we shrink people in the workplace. And those are things that we might not even be thinking about because we're like, well, I haven't heard from them in five hours. So I'm just going to ping their manager, you know, and, and, and that comes across a different way. So I think that when we realize, wow, let me be introspective about my behavior and how I'm engaging. I love that you talked about the different formats as well. And like the need to recognize that some formats just lend themselves to this like brevity that could be interpreted in in just the wrong ways. Whether email, I think Mm -hmm. about Slack all the time. I am just like, this is what I need. And I'll write it really quickly. And I may not have talked to that person in months. It's not like the in-person interaction where you like warm it up a little bit with a, how are you doing? It's just like straight to the point. So last year, we saw this huge push for diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives mid-pandemic when a lot of people were working from home. How do you think being remote has factored into the initiatives that people are doing within their respective companies? You know, last year was interesting because we were in a syndemic, a multiple pandemics at once. And I think we were forced to pay attention to people who live maybe similar lives and different lives, right? Like we had no choice <laughs> but to be present for for certain things. And I think it made us better, right? I think it made us more empathetic. I think it made us more aware of how we can activate allyship, how we can teach our children how to show up better in the world. And I do think that it allowed us to see humanity a little bit different because I think we were all very much desensitized to certain things because you just hear it or it didn't happen in your neighborhood. But we were seeing people affected that we do know. And I think that it's unfortunate that so many people suffered during that time period, but it allowed us to humanize each other a little bit more to remind that, you know, this is somebody's daughter, this is somebody's son, this is somebody's grandparent or parent. And I think that because we're so busy and on the go, we often don't think 
about others in that way. And humanity can't survive if we don't show up for each other. I think that it made us better. But if we don't take advantage of the moment that we had and build on that, then I think it's real easy for us to be susceptible to going back to our silos and not thinking about how we are a direct connection to the success of someone else as well. Mm, Very true. Well, Minda, this has been a wonderful conversation. And I want to close with a question that we've been asking of all of our guests. What is the best piece of leadership advice you've ever been given? The advice I'm about to say wasn't actually given to me per se, but I read it and I took it as if that person said it directly (laughs) to me. But it was the best advice that I've ever gotten. And it's from an author activist named Audre Lorde. And she says, beware of feeling you're not good enough to deserve it. And I received that advice in in the workplace during a time period where I was like, "Mm, do I deserve to be seen? Do I deserve to be heard? Do I deserve to be treated like, you know, the other woman in my company? And I realized that I do. But in order for that to happen, I had to activate my voice. I had to, you know, advocate for myself. I had to build relationships, all of those different things. And so I deserve that just like somebody else. And so I would pass that along. When you're questioning something, beware of feeling like you don't deserve the things that you that you need to be supported in the workplace. I love that. So on the flip side of this, what is the worst piece of leadership advice you've ever gotten? Yeah, there's probably a laundry list. We could do a top 10 of those like up <laughs> for social media. But someone said to me, say yes to everything that someone asks you in the workplace. Every time someone asks you, say yes. And a lot of the things I was saying yes to was just I was doing triple work and not getting any further ahead. And so I, I would say, say yes to the things that help with your short term and long term career goals, not just yes to everything. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. fully agree. It's it's an impossible standard to hold yourself to, to say yes to everything. Yes. Well, I really appreciate you doing this with us. And you have always been a just member favorite here at Chief. Thank you for your support. Um, I am a, a honorary member in my heart of Chief. So thank you so much. That was leadership and DEI consultant Minda Hartz. And that was your interview solo without me. And I think you did a good job. Careful, Lindsay. Um, getting my wings under me. I might fly solo. I said you did a good job. You do better <laughs> when you're with me. That is true. I know. So I love that Minda presented this as a twofold set of solutions. So on one hand, yes. Women and non-white employees should be able to ask for what you need at work and self-advocate. But also, on the other hand, hybrid workplaces have to be set up to anticipate some of these needs because none of these issues are new. Yeah, and I think it's really important to cite one of the statistics that Minda mentioned again, because it is just such an important one, that the majority of Black women didn't feel like they belonged at their companies until they went remote. That is just such an important stat for us all as we think about next steps. Yeah. And I think what she said about bringing that advocacy toolkit, it's important, but it is a weight. It is a weight that we are asking people to bring with them to work every day. And so as leaders, what can we do to make that lighter? What solutions can we find in the workplace, online, in this hybrid, remote, God knows how we're operating in the future mode to make sure that we are creating an equitable workplace where people don't have to bring this heavy toolkit and this heavy weight to work. 
Yeah, I hope it's a moment where leaders step forward and start to think about the solutions that they need to create. And to help them do that, we brought back Francis Fry and Ann Morris, researchers and co-authors of Unleashed, the Unapologetic Leader's Guide to Empowering Everyone Around You. Yes. And when we talk about what workplaces can do, while well, they've worked with and studied some of the most successful companies in the world. So we asked them for some insight into what actually works to build DEI initiatives in a remote working environment. Francis, Anne, thank you for joining us again. We wanted to take a bit of time today to talk about the future of remote work, especially as it intersects with DEI initiatives. So the first question is a big one. Does a remote or hybrid workplace leave anybody behind? Yeah, so this is super exciting. So if you look at who's thriving in the remote work environment and who's not, there's demographic tendencies. People of color thriving much more in the remote environment. Underrepresented. So if women have like a much lower satisfaction score, chances are they're going to be preferring the remote work because you don't experience the microaggressions in remote. You don't have to put on as much armor. Um, you don't have to put on high heels. You don't have to put on high heels. You don't even have to put on like real pants. Pants? <laughs> is she or is Grace. she? Yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting to see. And, and if you look at the desire of people who are like, oh, real employees want to be in person. And, and if you look at the CEOs that are saying that, well, they're all like, their birthdays are within like five years of one another. It's all men of a certain age. It's all men of a certain Mm -hmm. age. They all wear like a 42 long jacket. It's like central casting one, two, three, four. And they're totally missing what's going on. So first I would say that hybrid work is likely very awesomely here to stay. And so then it's like, well, what can we do to optimize that? The organizations that are riding this wave most skillfully are the ones that are getting really curious and really excited about what did we learn in the last 18 months? Because the other thing that we always point out at this point in the conversation is that the experiment we just ran was working during a pandemic. Yeah, we didn't learn about remote work. This was not just a remote work experiment. And I think teasing out that distinction is going to be really important as we figure out, okay, what are the lessons we're going to take with us? And what are lessons that are really just about this pandemic? And even those lessons are lessons we're going to take with us about collective trauma, individual trauma, grief, pain. How do we incorporate those aspects of our human experience into this shared thing that we spend most of our day doing work, right? That is an essential conversation that we need to have. And then how do we, yes, how do we collaborate in different places at different times? That's another set of issues, but we have been conflating the two, I think, in a lot of these conversations about remote work. I think that's a great point. We see so much data about women working longer hours, actually, as we've gone remote. And to your point, schools have been closed. Camps have been shut down, right? And so women have often taken on the lion's share of responsibility and caregiving. So we are in a situation that is not actually reflective of what true remote work could be. Yeah. Oh, to that point, there was some astonishing statistic. I got to go back and find it. It was like March, right? (laughs) (laughs) Or something. And 
I think the American economy lost 140,000 Oh, jobs yeah, it was January. And they were all women. All. Yeah. It was 100%, 100%. of the loss was women leaving the workforce. Yeah. And it, it was just a flash of a headline. And then there's a lot to do. So everyone moved on. But I think that data point for me captures exactly that point, Lindsay, is that people also experienced this collective trauma in highly variable ways. And in some ways, along the fault lines of gender and race and access to opportunity and, and yeah, socioeconomic class. Yep. Yeah, and socioeconomic think, class is big here, Lindsay. It's exactly yeah. right. And all of that has to be part of, yes, the healing and the cleanup, but also the learning. There is so much that we can mine from this experience that we just walked through together. And I think the risk, at least in the U.S., because we have such a forward orientation as a culture, there's a risk that we're going to miss the opportunity to figure out what the hell just happened and how can we learn from it in very thoughtful ways. For our next book, we were doing a bunch of research projects and one that we just completed was on moms that left the workforce. On what would it have taken to stay? <laughs> we heard things like, I tried to bring my office chair home. I was told I wasn't allowed to. And I was told I couldn't expense one. And you know what? I just thought the company doesn't care. So in some instances, the answer was my office chair. And many, many times we found like a surprising number of small things. Yes. I have complained in every office I have ever had of my crappy office chair hurting my back. It is the little things. And so as we move into this hybrid world, and I say hybrid because I think there's going to be a lot of people who want to remain in the office, many people who want to go in part-time, and a giant contingency of people who want to stay remote forever. And I think there's this widespread belief that people who are in the office will have better growth opportunities. Do you think those beliefs are founded? Well, I can tell you that leadership has a choice. And if leadership goes back to the 1950s version of FaceTime means promotion rate, regardless of competence, you'll lose all of your good people that aren't interested in FaceTime. Like it might be tempting to give in to that and promote people and, and based on that, and you'll lose good people immediately. So I think you're giving a cautionary tale. Now more than ever, it's really important for us to give people credit for the outcomes and not give credit. Like, like the participation trophy of being in the office, we just have to put those away. And I think it's a very old idea, but there are some people, like when we listen to CEOs saying, I just want people back in the office, I think it's because they want to see people, like it just makes them feel better to see people. But those participation trophies are not going to lead to having great talent. They're just not. So outside of this potential promotion risk, what are the other things you think leaders really should be investing in at this moment when it comes to this new way of working? So I'll say that a lot of informal development happened on the way to the water cooler and at the water cooler. So informal development needs to be really proactive when we're remote. So we want to make sure that you know, if you have a weekly one-on-one -on -one with someone, you want to make sure that 30 minutes of it every month is devoted to the personal development. Now, you can do it. In fact, you can do it sometimes quite a bit more intimately. In fact, many of those conversations are awesome audio only, not even Zoom on when each person is maybe going for a walk and they're audio only. Now, here's what's going to happen. 
that's going to be better than it was in the old world for people, particularly people who are different than you, because we're often informally developing people who are just like us, because our experience is their experience. And the more different people are, the we're not. So if we now start doing this for everyone, it's actually going to be awesome for the organization. The other area of exposure, I think, is onboarding. Oh, yeah. It was faster in a world where everyone was showing up and performing the culture, the shared basic assumptions and behaviors and art, and you're immersed in it and you get, okay, this is how things are done around here. And I think it it is harder in a remote environment and it is a place where bringing additional intentionality and structure and in most cases, time really comes with a big payoff. Yeah. I think it's event planning. It's just, you need people who are skilled in the event of remote as opposed to the event of in-person. And a lot of these functions that happened by default with a fair amount of ambiguity and not a whole lot of structure, onboarding or <laughs> development. Yeah, we just gave like energetic people right. license to go do it. So the, yeah. the intersection with DEI is that in those worlds, the yeah. people who benefited were the ones who were really centered culturally, right? Yeah. It was easier for them to be mentored. It was easier for them to affiliate with people more senior in the organization. I think in this moment where we are forced to be more structured and deliberate, even about promotions decision, if we're going to move from measuring FaceTime inputs to performance outputs, well, now we have to figure out how to measure outputs. That's going to benefit and everyone. Del- yeah. And it's going to disproportionately benefit people who were coming from the cultural margins in the past. Yeah. I mean, if we're deliberate, underrepresented minorities win because we've just informally not been centering on them. Not out of any bad intent. We just, we really like people who are really like us. You have to be super deliberate to move away from that. Yeah, that's a really good thing to be reminded of. So have you found any upsides from working remotely? Yeah, so, and here are fun things where online is better than in person. I can have loads of polls online. So if I'm not getting everyone's voice, well, I can do a poll and everyone will weigh in. And with all kinds of stuff like that, people can chat. So some people don't feel comfortable talking, they can chat in and there's multidimensional ways of doing it. But many in-person meetings before all of this went, first person to speak was probabilistically in the majority. The second person to speak is going to be someone who agrees with them because <laughs> they just created space for that. When the third person who speaks also agrees with them, you can go ahead and end the meeting then. But no, we keep the whole the meeting going for the whole hour and it's torture. But the deliberateness that we have learned and that it's much easier to do online because everyone's taken up the exact same amount of space. Like all of us are all same size here. That's so awesome. And we can move each other around. Also awesome. (laughs) So now what we have learned is that first person who speaks, great. But now the facilitator who needn't be the leader, which is much easier here, gets to say, can someone articulate an alternate point of view? I'm not even asking to someone have, because that can be a little too risky. Can someone articulate? And then they do. And then you just have to ask that question one more time. Can someone articulate another alternate point of view? And now you've just created space for everyone in the room. And what you see online is lots and lots of more discussion. Well, that's something I hope we really bring back to in practice, but it's going to be harder in practice because of the nonverbal language. People take up different amounts of space. So, There's been some magnificent egalitarian principles of digital 
that we're going to want to try to think about when we when we go back. I just love that phrase because it really gives permission for people to speak up and not necessarily take ownership of a different view, right? But to just present it in a way that feels accretive to the conversation. Uh, and accretive to the conversation is beautiful. And that took us years because we first were promoting, do you have an alternate point of view? And the real breakthrough came to exactly what you're pointing out, Lindsay, is can you articulate an alternate point of view? And then loads more hands would go up. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was an absolute pleasure to have this conversation. Thank you so much. Absolutely our pleasure. That was Francis Fry and Ann Morris. I always love talking to them. They make the most (laughs) complex solutions just seem like obvious and easy to implement. So between speaking with them and Aminda, it does seem like the answer to how to make sure that women, caregivers, non-white employees, that they don't get left behind in a hybrid office. That answer is simple. Be deliberate. And I think continue to experiment. We just came out of the biggest workplace experiment ever in 2020. And in this moment, we are redefining how people work. And it would be great for leaders to step forward and really put a DEI lens on that to make sure that we're doing it in a way that allows for the benefits of the hybrid workplace, but doesn't leave certain groups behind. Yes. And I see so many workplaces going back and and what feels like to me a little bit forcing the back to work argument that we have to get back to the whiteboards. We have to get back to, you know, having these in-person, impromptu meetings. And I really urge workplaces to not go back to business as usual. Mm. You know what I think is is great about these conversations is how optimistic they both were. Yes. Uh, I think we came into this thinking, oh man, when we go into this hybrid workplace, there's going to be so much inequity in the way that the people who are choosing to stay home versus those that choose to go into the workplace are going to succeed in the workplace. And I personally walked away from this with a lot more optimism that there is some real great solutions, tactics, and amazing thought leaders that are working on these problems. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the flip of this, just to go back to being deliberate, is we have to be intentional about taking advantage of this complete shift in workplace dynamics. This is a massive opportunity for us to reinvent what DEI looks like in the workplace. It's a new world, and we get to decide how to make it work for all of us, not just the people who are comfortable in the office, not just the people who want to get right back into the way things are, but for everybody, and especially for the people who weren't served before. That's all for this episode of The New Rules of Business by Chief. You can find us on LinkedIn, or if you're interested in joining the Chief Network, apply to be a member at chief.com. Thank you to Sharon Yee, Courtney Conley, Katrina Conan and Rial, Blaine Edens, and Gabriella Margarino at Chief. And to our production team, Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Andy Bosnack, Madison Lesby, Michelle O'Brien, and Veronica Simonetti. Our music is by Colin Hatch. I'm Lindsay Kaplan. And I'm Carolyn Childers. Thanks for listening.